Good morning, Home Church. Happy Palm Sunday to you. God is not distant. God cares about every one of you that's in this room and watching online this morning. So much that he sent Jesus to die for all of us. So much that he knows every one of you and knows every hair, for those that have hair, on your head. (laughs) He loves you. And if you haven't caught on, home church is all about being at home with Jesus. It's all about experiencing his presence and knowing who he is. And what I want for every one of you is to clearly understand that as we celebrate Palm Sunday and as we celebrate this Easter season and, of course, beyond that. But Palm Sunday, where I want to start is in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can do that. Genesis chapter 3. My series is called Upper Room, and I'm going to be doing that for the next three weeks. And if you know anything about the Upper Room, and we're going to learn a lot about it in the course of the next three weeks, there is a lot that happens in the Upper Room. But really, what I want to focus on is the heart of God in that Upper Room. Like, I want us to have a seat at the table during the Last Supper. And I want us to experience what Jesus is saying in the upper room. I want us to experience what the disciples experienced when he was resurrected from the dead and he appeared to them in the upper room. I want us to experience what happened on Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit fell on them. On 120, they all began to speak in other tongues. And from that moment, the church began right out of the upper room. There's so much to it, but I want us to understand the heart of God because that's what it's all about in the upper room. So why Genesis? Why on Palm Sunday am I going to start in Genesis? Well, that's when the fall happened. And to set it up, God walked in perfect communion with Adam and Eve. In the cool of the garden, he would walk with them. He would connect with them. He would commune with them. They were in union together. It was perfect. It was what it's meant to be. But unfortunately, the devil comes along and screwed up things. He comes in, disguises a serpent, and coerces Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge so that they, quote unquote, would be made like God. They would know everything like God. They would know good and evil like God. What harm is that? And he coerces them and they eat. And the fall happens. So I'm going to begin in verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. They eat of the fruit and then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I have read this a thousand times. And the thing that stood out to me was the question that God asked Adam and Eve. Where are you? And I believe that question applies now, thousands of years later, to every one of us sitting in this room, every one of us that are watching online, to be honest with you, every one of us that's outside these four walls. That question applies to all of us, to all of humanity throughout all of human time. Where are you? That is the heart of God. 
his concern that we have left him. He acknowledges the separation of sin and he wants us to be reconnected to him. That is why he sent Jesus. That is why on this particular Sunday and the next Sunday, we're celebrating the Easter season. To be honest with you, that is why we come together every Sunday. That is the reason why we worship him every day in our private time as well. It's because of Jesus. And God, when he asked that question, where are you, is acknowledging the separation. It's acknowledging the fact that he is in pain, that we are separated from him because of sin. And so he sends Jesus to address that sin. And of course, we celebrate his birth on Christmas. And as we're entering into Palm Sunday, this is symbolizing almost 33 years of him being on this earth, living a perfect life. And he knew at this time, as the Bible says, the fullness of time, he knew at this moment was time for me to go into Jerusalem and fulfill the reason why I came. And that reason was to die for us. And of course, be resurrected. Take care of the penalty of sin, but also give us life because the consequence of sin is death. And so he fulfilled everything, but it had to start somewhere. And for me, being a guy who is former military, the mission had to start somewhere to where we could clearly see it. And of course, the mission is being planned all before it's actually executed. And what we see here on Palm Sunday is he enters the east gate of Jerusalem and goes towards the temple. We see him begin very clearly his mission to answer the question with a solution of where are you? And that solution is Jesus, God in the flesh. So John chapter 12 is where I want to pick up. John chapter 12. And John writes this, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Their motivation was for him to come and be king and save them from the Roman oppression. They were very short-sighted. They didn't realize that Jesus was coming in to save them from themselves. We don't need to be saved from this world. We don't need to be saved from our government. We don't need to be saved from famine. We don't need to be saved from COVID-19. No, we need to be saved from ourselves. And as Jesus entered in on a donkey, and you, you kind of wonder why a donkey? A donkey represented, if you rode on a donkey, it represented peace. He comes in peace. He's coming in peace. He's saying here, right now, begins the age of grace. Begins the opportunity for you to lay down your sin and come to me. Nothing expected other than repent of your sin. In other words, turn away from it. Come to me and accept me. Believe in me. That is grace. And as he enters in on the donkey and he's hearing all these people yell out, blessed is the king of Israel, Hosanna. He tunes it out. Because it's not in spirit and in truth. He tunes it out. And he rides, and I, I can just see him getting off his donkey before the temple. Because you come in through the east gate, it's right there. Going in, right there is the temple. And I can hear him thinking the words. This will be torn down, but in three days, I will raise it up again. His mission, 
He was razor focused on it. Nothing could deter him from it. Nothing could take him out from it. No persecution, no Pharisee, no Sadducee, no scribe. Nothing could stop him from fulfilling his mission. Not even the devil. Can I get an amen? Amani gave a great testimony up here about her mission trip to Pakistan. And if you've ever been on a mission trip, let me tell you something. When you're on mission, nothing can take your focus off that mission. It's like the Holy Spirit fills you and gives you that resolve to complete that mission. And it's awesome. It's like everything tries to distract you and keep you from being on target, but nothing can. It just won't work. And I remember being in Argentina back in 2014. We visited a church that we were partnering with to help them build their floor. They actually had a dirt floor with a prefabricated building over it. There was nothing but just dirt. And so they asked us to come down and basically fill it with concrete. We had to mix our own concrete. We had to fill it ourselves. We had to dig out the floor and make sure we had a good place for the concrete to be laid. And let me tell you something. That was a job that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. The most manual labor I've ever done was digging out a floor, mixing concrete, and pouring that concrete But man, nothing could stop us. Fatigue couldn't stop us. Not eating could stop us. Nothing, distractions, the weather, nothing could stop us. We just kept on doing it. And that floor was done in about four days. And the very next Sunday, we had church on that floor. And it was the most amazing experience to see the mission completed so that people could worship Jesus on a concrete floor as opposed to dirt. It was just the most amazing thing, fulfilling that mission. Nothing could get me and our team off focus. And I believe this is exactly how Jesus was when it came time to fulfill his purpose. So why upper room? Well, I want to talk about that over the next three weeks. I want to talk about what happens in there. And with that, let's go ahead and just pray. Father, I just thank you so much for everybody that's here and everybody that's watching online. Father, I thank you that today we're going to understand what it means to be connected to you. We're going to understand what happened in the upper room and how it applies to us now. And Father, I'm asking that the words of my mouth be the words that you want me to say today and there are open hearts this morning to receive. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The upper room. I did some research because I like to figure some things out. You know, I'm always open to learning some new things and And sometimes it requires reading a lot of material. And I read a lot about the upper room. And there's been a lot of debate over the last millennia or so about where the actual upper room is and the location of that room. And there's there's so much debate about it because, as we well know, the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and pulled down all the walls and everything and just, just destroyed it. And then you have the Crusades later on where it changed hands between Muslim and Christian. And so all these places where we think this is where the crucifixion happened, this is where the resurrection happened, this is where this happened, this is where that happened, it's really up for debate on where these actual places are. And I really got wrapped around where is this upper room. I'm a history buff. I majored in history. I love history. I love going to places and thinking to myself, this is the spot where this happened. And unfortunately in Jerusalem, sometimes it's, it's questionable whether did it really happen here or was it somewhere else. And God clearly spoke to me during the time when I was researching this and said, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where this happened. 
Just know that it did. That's really what, what matters. And a lot of people are really wrapped around the axle about where these things actually happen, where the upper room is. And if you were to look at it today, what they claim to be the actual traditional site of the upper room, it's a fairly large room on an upper floor, like it should be. It's outside the old city gates of Jerusalem. And it's also, so it has a good face where you could actually see the old city, but also you could see the Mount of Olives. And it's really cool. And they really think that this is the general vicinity. It may not be the actual room, but it's really kind of the general vicinity of where three things happen. And even that's up to debate. Some people say, well, these three things didn't happen in the same room. Well, I think it did, and that's what I'm going to go with. First thing is the Last Supper. The Last Supper happened in the upper room. The Bible says that. We're going to read that here in a minute. The resurrection when Jesus, Jesus appeared to his disciples, the ones that locked themselves up in a room, it's believed it's the same upper room, which makes sense. They have a relationship with the owner of that place. They felt safe there. They had the last supper there. Why wouldn't they go back there after Jesus died on the cross? Amen. And then the third thing is on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and they began to speak in other tongues and the church began. Those are the three things that are significant that we're going to explore over the course of the next three weeks. And I believe, to be honest with you, the upper room is kind of in the top three. Obviously where Jesus was crucified or Golgotha, and then of course the empty garden tomb where he was resurrected. This would be in that top three, in my opinion. The upper room represents so much to the point where Jesus even calls it out. And Mark chapter 14 is where I want to turn to next. Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn there. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed a Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? And where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they had prepared the Passover. So Jesus and his 12 disciples are going to spend the night celebrating the Passover together. And this is a large upper room. It would be on the second floor of this home. Typically, the man who probably owns this house is wealthy. And this room is designed specifically for dinner, for dining together. And this is why we get, I believe, in our culture that coming together and eating a meal is a very intimate thing to do, right? If you ever want to have a family meeting or a gathering with your friends, you're probably going to do that over a meal. We do a lot of that here at church. It's part of the reason why I gained 10 pounds over the last couple of years is we eat a lot of food together because that is an opportunity to come together and actually share an intimate moment, have conversation, be in each other's presence, come down to each other's level and just be with each other. And this is what Jesus wanted before he went to the cross. He was still razor focused on his mission, but he wanted this opportunity to come together. And I can just envision it, this large room lit by candlelight they were all on the floor because they don't have, didn't have tables like we do today. They were on the floor, low, sitting on cushions, 
reclining at tables, the Bible says. And Jesus is about to say something in the next 23 verses that I'm going to go through that is going to change everything. What he said in John chapter 14. And John chapter 14, for me, is such an important passage. And I believe for all of humanity. Because if you believe what Jesus says in John chapter 14, man, everything's going to go well for you. Because now you move from death to life. Now you move from sin to forgiveness. And you move into God's good grace and you have eternal life and you have relationship with Jesus, which means you have relationship with the Father, which means you have relationship with the Holy Spirit, which means this life is not the end. John chapter 14. Man, we're going to go through these 23 verses. And I'm excited to reveal some things that I believe God is saying that will help you and encourage you. So if you will, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. I know we're doing a lot of flipping around today. This is the last section you'll have to turn in your Bibles. So they just get through eating the Passover dinner. Jesus just finishes washing the feet of his disciples. A very humbling thing to do for God in the flesh to sit down and wash the feet of his disciples. We talked about that, I believe, last week. And as he's done, he goes back to the table, and they're all sitting around him, and this is what he says. Verse 1, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For all of us that are in here today, how many of our hearts are troubled? We see a lot of things, right, going on, and we've talked about those things. Don't even turn on the news, right? It's very easy for our hearts to be troubled. It's very easy for me to look at my retirement plan and say, oh God, my heart is troubled. It's very easy to see the things that are happening in our nation, to see over just the last few days the this, this severe tornado outbreak that we've seen over our country and say, oh God, my heart is troubled. What Jesus is saying here is, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's how my heart is not troubled anymore. It's because I place my faith in God by placing my faith in Jesus. Because what we're going to see here is Jesus and God are one. Amen? That's not really a newsflash for us all, but there's something significant there. You believe in Jesus means you also believe in God. God the Father, God the Son. And what's going to happen and why your heart shouldn't be troubled is this next verse in verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. That should be a hanky-waving moment right here. That's awesome. Wherever Jesus is, I am going to be one day. There is a place that he has prepared for every one of us that are in Christ. And when I say in Christ, for those of you maybe that are new here, means you've accepted Jesus. Just like he said, believe in God, believe also in me. You've accepted him. And by doing so, you've turned from your sin. 
and you've received him, and now you're in Christ. Now there is a place that Jesus has prepared for you, and that is good news. This life is not over when the lights go out. You'll be more alive when they do, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. There is that place that he has prepared for us. So last year, my family and I, we went to uh, Disney World last year to celebrate Pastor Elijah's 21st birthday. That was his birthday wish. He wanted to go see the mouse, he wanted to drain my wallet, and that's what happened. And of course, we stayed at a resort within the resort of Disney World. And so one of the things that I remember is we got to the main building of the resort that we were staying in, and we had to walk all the way to the other side of this specific resort. And we were passing building after building after building after building of rooms. There must have been thousands of rooms at this resort. And we finally got to the last building where our room was, all tired and frustrated, all upset, all just, you know, ready to just go to bed because we knew we had another three days to spend in the park. And we just arrived. And I remember getting to our room and opening the door and all that went away because of the Disney magic. <laughs> our room was prepared. The big screen TV was on and they were playing Disney music through it. And they had the schedule of everything that was going to happen at the park the next day. And when the parks opened, the beds were ready. Towels were folded up on our beds. The light was even on in the bathroom. It was like they were ready for us. And all that frustration and tiredness went right out the door. This is what it's going to be like when we go to heaven. Amen. A thousand times better. <laughs> this room prepared for us. And that should give you some joy, right? So Jesus is sharing this with his disciples. And they must be sitting there just mind blown. Like, what does this mean? And I love this. He goes, I will come again and will take you to myself. From the vantage point of where they're sitting in that upper room, they can literally see the Mount of Olives. When Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth, that's where his feet are going to land. And he's going to come rolling through that east gate again and set up his kingdom. But the good news for us, the church, is we believe the rapture. Amen. Amen. And there's going to be a time, and I believe it's close, where he's going to come back. And before you know it, we're going to be with him. And hello, prepared room. I'm looking forward to it. That should give us encouragement. And of course, with the disciples, they're just blown. They don't know what to think of this, but we're going to find out. John chapter 14, starting again in verse 5, there's always somebody that has to ask a question in the middle of something that Jesus, that he said is very powerful. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, listen to this. If there's any verse that you memorize outside of John 3.16, this is the one. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If there's anybody in here that's wondering, like Thomas, what is the way? How can I know the way? The way is not something. The way is 
God in the flesh, Jesus. He is the way. Well, how do we know what truth is? Well, guess what? Truth is a capital T. His name is Jesus. What is life? What's the meaning of life? Jesus. How can I go and be with God? Jesus. So many people are asking that question right now. How many people in this world are asking this kind of question that Thomas asked? You know, Thomas gets a lot of criticism because he's doubting Thomas, right? He gets a lot of criticism. Let me just tell you something. He finds the way, and he becomes martyred as he's preaching the gospel in what is today known as India. Okay, so he does figure out the way. He does accept the way. And all of us that are asking questions about what is the way, this world thinks that we as believers are narrow-minded. And God bless them. They're right, we are. And I've said that before in here. But our job is to show them the way. Amen? And Jesus is the way. Verse 8, here comes Philip. You think one question's enough? We got another one. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is saying, I am God. God the Father and me the Son, we are one. The whole time he's telling them, this is the way it should be, not just with me and the Father, but with you, me, and the Father. I'm in the Father, and he's in me. And he wants us to be part of that. Philip is saying, show me the Father. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Dude, I've been walking with you for three years. I've been walking on water. Remember that time? I told the wind to cease, and it did. I raised my friend Lazarus from the dead. You were there. I made blind people see as it's prophesied. I made deaf people hear as was prophesied. You know the Father because you know me. And I have said it as you see me do, you're seeing the Father. As you hear me speak, you're hearing the Father. Why are you saying, show me the Father? Here I am. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. First thing that I want you to know out of John chapter 14 is this, that connection with the Father is made through faith in Jesus. You want to be connected to the creator of the universe, the creator of everything seen and unseen, the only one true living God, faith in Jesus. You now become an adopted son or daughter. You're now brought into the family of God. You are now made one with the Father through Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, 
this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus didn't just die for us to save us. He died for us so that we could be partners with him. If you're writing notes today, the second thing to remember from this is connection with God our Father means we're in a partnership. Jesus just said that we will do his works and greater. That applies to us, the church. This whole thing that we're doing on Sunday to Sunday is not to come in here and just sing some songs and feel good about ourselves. No, this is due to the works that Jesus did and greater. This is our responsibility that people, when they see us, they they see Jesus. And I'm going to be very careful here because I don't want you guys to think that we become God when we are brought into the family of God. And there has been some, not from here, not from this church, praise God, but there has been some preaching about that, and that is not true. We're brought into the family of God, and we're given responsibility to be Jesus to those around us, meaning we represent him. We're his witnesses. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that comes through us, quickens our mortal bodies, but also comes through to us to show the love of God to people around us. What he's saying here is, I'm not just the way, the truth, and the life, but I'm also here to partner with you to continue the work until I come back. That is our responsibility as a church. Verse 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. There is that. We're together. We're one. We're brought together in union with God, the father and God, the son. That's Jesus. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. The Holy Spirit is brought into the picture. He's talking about God the Father. He's talking about God the Son, that's him, being the way, the truth, and the life. And now he brings in God the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. We're seeing him talk through the Trinity and the relationship that they have with one another and the relationship as we're brought into the kingdom of God that we have with them, that we become one with them. This is this perfect union. This is the way that God designed it to be. It's the reason why I started in Genesis was the whole where are you? This is the solution. It's happening right here in the upper room where God is making it so clear, his plan to save us, his plan to redeem us, his plan to bring us back into his family. It's not about a room. It's about the fact that God wanted to make it very crystal clear as to what it means to be in Christ, what it means to belong to his family, what it means to to have the Holy Spirit live inside of us. And that's what happens at the point of salvation. When that happens, the Holy Spirit makes his home in us. Now we're God's home. We're his temple. We are the ones that, that are the light bearers in this dark world. 
And so what happens is when we receive Jesus, the old passes away, and behold, all things become new. Everything within us becomes new. The new creation. The new creation in Christ. And we're stamped and we're sealed for all eternity as belonging to God's family. And if I'm a disciple sitting there hearing this for the first time, again, I'm just, what is he talking about? But we have the benefit of looking back and seeing and being able to talk about this and being able to be encouraged by his word this morning. The Holy Spirit brings us in union with Jesus and the Father. And I think about the union, I start thinking about the Civil War. I'm a big Civil War buff, grew up in Virginia, went to a university in Virginia that's a military university, VMI. A lot of Civil War history in the Shenandoah Valley, a lot of Civil War history throughout the state of Virginia. But man, one thing that Abraham Lincoln said to his, to, to his generals, it was, I will preserve the union at all cost, whatever it takes. I will preserve this union. And I thought about this because there's something that I, I have. I have a, a military history calendar uh, on, my, on my desk. So every day I pull it off and there's something new. And there was something that happened just a couple of days ago in 1865 when Abraham Lincoln met with his generals, Sheridan, Grant, and there was one other, I forgot. And they were talking about how they were going to end the war. And he said, whatever needs to happen to get them to surrender, let's do it because I need to preserve this union. He knew the mission. And he would do anything to make sure that mission was accomplished. And I started thinking about what I'm talking about today. God did everything to make sure that the union was preserved for all eternity. He was willing to sacrifice anything, and that's why he sacrificed Jesus on our behalf. That union is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now here comes Judas in verse 22. Question number three. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? That's a good question, Judas. Guess how he's going to do it? Through the church. Through you. He was able to physically do it in front of them. We weren't there 2,000 years ago. We didn't see this happen. But when we accepted Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, now all of a sudden now, we're given that responsibility to manifest Jesus to the world. That's how that's going to happen. And church, how well are we doing that right now? Because what I'm seeing here is Jesus expressing love for us that's unconditional, unmerited. doesn't require us to be good or do certain things. It requires us to turn from our sin and say, I believe and I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And truly mean it. This right here is Grace. This is love. This is not God judging, condemning, distant, making you feel guilty or shameful. That's the devil, not God. This is God saying, no, I am very much in your life. I don't want your heart to be troubled. I very much want you to believe in me by believing only in Jesus. I want you to be part of my family. And not only that, I want you to partner with me. And help spread this good news because the time is short. In God's, in God's kingdom, there is no time. He can see the beginning and the end. And for us, it seems like it's been forever. We've been on this earth as the church for 2,000 years. But time is short. 
whether Jesus comes back 200 years from now or comes back two months from now, it don't matter. We have a job to do. So the fourth thing, if you're taking notes, connection with God the Father is seen by others. It's seen by others. And I love Sunday mornings. I get to see you, all of you. In some cases throughout the week, I see some of you too. But mainly on Sunday morning, I see all of you collectively. And a lot of you, thank you, praise God, encourage me. I feel like more than I encourage you. Like I can sense that you're connected to God. Because the presence of God manifests through you to me. And if you're doing that for me, how much more are you doing that for others around you? That's so important. People can see Jesus in us. John chapter 14, closing it out in verse 23. This is how Jesus answered Judas. Not Iscariot. If anyone, 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 Jew, Muslim, Gay, straight, pro-life, pro-choice, Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, prostitute, lawyer, doctor, anyone, anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Well, how will I keep your word? Believe in me. How will I not grieve the Holy Spirit? Believe in me. And my father will love him or her. And will come to him and make our home with him. Now, I really love the fact that our church is named Home Church. There's your verse, Pastor Elijah. There's the verse for this church. A place where we believe in Jesus and God makes his home with us. You're a walking home for God. When you accept him and you're in Christ, he has made his home in you. Man, I claim depression gone in Jesus' name. I claim stress and anxiety gone in Jesus' name. I claim that you walk in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. Man, why is all that possible? Because God, through Jesus, has made his home in you. And what I'm going to say here today We need a homecoming. And I believe that God is asking the question, where are you? Not just to unbelievers, but also to believers. Where are you? Has your relationship grown cold? Have you become lukewarm? Are you hot? Have you turned away? Have you made church your routine? Man, the upper room represents an opportunity for us 
to have a homecoming. That God doesn't just want to make his home in you, but he wants you to come home. And what the upper room represents, and this is really my main point, is for us to come home out of the world. To come home out of the world and become one with God. That's the plan. That was the plan all along. That was why the garden was formed and why God created man and woman who became husband and wife and later became one flesh. It's a direct representation of the reason why Jesus came was to bring us home. And I don't know about you, but my kids, for the most part, have left my home. But whenever they come back into my house, it is a joyous opportunity for us to reconnect. Like I throw out the red carpet, welcome home. And in some cases, they know the, the garage code. They just come right on in and open the door, come in. and Hey, it's great to see them. And I love seeing them. My heart leaps to see them. I see my son every day in the office, but when he comes over to the house, it's like, welcome home. 